Judges chapter 16 tonight. Every one of us, there's been times where we've walked into a home and we've sensed a spirit of welcome, a spirit of love in a home. And and there are other homes where we have walked into and there's just a sense that the same spirit is not there. We've walked into churches through the years where you can sense just by being there that the Spirit of God is there and He's moving and He's alive and the power of God is operating. And there's other churches where you walk to and you just don't sense the same thing. The reason why I share that is because when you come to Judges chapter 16, it's the first time in the book of Judges that the Spirit of God is conspicuously absent from what is going on. I mean, all through the book of Judges, when God raised up a deliverer called a judge to to help out Israel and deliver them from the oppression of their enemies, the Spirit of God was always empowering them. And even through the early days of Samson's life, as we've seen up to this point, the Spirit of God would rush on him and empower him to do what he did. But when you come to Judges chapter 16, the Spirit of God is nowhere to be found. And what you have then is you have now a self-sufficient Samson. A Samson who instead of seeking God and knowing how much he needs God in his everyday life in ministry, here's a Samson who's grown to the point where he's self-sufficient and he's going to do this on his own. We have a little bit more to say about that later, but you know the Bible talks about the importance of walking in the Spirit of living in the Spirit, of praying in the Spirit, of not grieving the Spirit, of not quenching the Spirit. And yet you have here in Judges chapter 16 the total absence of the Spirit. And it just reminds us again as Christians of how imperative it is, how important it is that we learn to just live in the sphere of the Spirit, to listen to His voice, to to long for His leading, to pray for His guidance, to to wait for the Spirit of God in our lives. Whatever that looks like, I just feel very impressed to start there tonight because, listen, as we walk out of here even tonight and go into a new day tomorrow, it's going to be all about the Spirit of God in our lives and us not trying to go through tomorrow on our own in our own power and strength and wisdom, but by totally relying upon the Spirit of God to get us through and help us navigate that 24-hour period. That's absent from Judges chapter 16. That's why I think you'll notice also that in Judges chapter 16, the first woman of the chapter that we're introduced to is a prostitute in Gaza. And Samson is spending the night with her. And the citizens of Gaza are tipped off about Samson's presence here. So they assemble an ambush party at the city gate, apparently relaxed during the night, thinking there's no way he's going to escape during the night, so that at daylight they can kill him when he tries to leave her house. But notice, Samson is not above leaving a woman in bed to save his skin. While the Gaza Civil Defense Unit is waiting for light, Samson uses the night. And probably with a bit of a smile, he grabs the doors and the side posts of the town gate, pulls them out, bar included, and with a slight hoop, shoulders them and trudges off to deposit them on a hill near Hebron, leaving an opening in the city gate and a dent in the municipal budget. That's the way Judges chapter 16 starts out in the first three verses. 
Then there is Delilah, verse 4. She is the only woman mentioned by name in the Samson stories. We don't know why that is. You know, the Bible says here in verse 4 that Samson fell in love with this woman, Delilah. That may be true to some degree, but if you look at this chapter, you realize that their relationship and their marriage was far from built on a solid foundation. I mean, the Bible tells us in verse 6 that Delilah's first thing is she wants to figure out what the secret of his strength is so she can subdue and humiliate her husband. Well, that's a good goal for a wife. <laughs> Haven't been married to you very long, but I want to humiliate you as soon as, you know, I get the chance. And, and Samson doesn't trust his wife because she has to go through all these games that she plays with him in order to try to find out his secret. And he basically comes out and says later on, I, I, I just don't trust you. What kind of marriage is it where the spouses don't trust each other? How how can you have a solid marriage relationship where there's no foundation of trust? So there's a, you know, a lot of dysfunction, shall we say, going on here. We don't even know whether Delilah was a Philistine or whether she was an Israelite. The Bible never tells us, and it really doesn't matter, because it doesn't even matter to Delilah, because we find out in verse five of Judges 16 that the only thing that really mattered to Delilah was Philistine money. The leaders of the Philistines come once she's hooked up with Samson and they say to her, trick him, find out what makes him so strong and how we can subdue him and humiliate him. And each one of us will give you 1100 silver pieces. That's how bad they wanted to humiliate Samson after all that he had done to them. They were going to pay her really, really well. Now, obviously, there's a lot of different ways we could approach this tonight, but I, I want to keep going because I think there's some more important things underneath the surface of what we are reading here. I do want to stop on this concept in verse 5 of trick him. The words mean to entice or deceive. It's what happens to us in our Christian lives, whether it's through the temptations of the devil or the world itself or someone else. What they try to get us to do is to give up something of greater value for something temporary or ultimately less fulfilling. That's what the words mean. And we all can identify with that. There's probably been at least one time in our life where we were tricked where somebody gave us the bait. It looked really good, but we didn't see the hook on the other side of it. And so we grabbed a hold of it. And what looked so good and and was so promising ended up causing a lot of pain. And we gave up something that was far more valuable for this and then found out that it only was fulfilling for a short amount of time and, and it only satisfied temporarily. I think, again, there's a lesson here for us. That just like Samson, we beware of the tricks or wiles of the devil and of the temptations of the world and of the lure of our own flesh that may put something in front of us to try to get us to go after it. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians that really Satan is a master at at 
throwing up red herrings. You know, when I used to teach dogs, you know, how to hunt, hunting dogs, the, the last test that a hunting dog would ever have to pass was the red herring test. If, if they could pass that fish underneath that nose of that dog and that dog could still say, stay focused on what it was supposed to stay focused on, it passed the test. Satan's always trying to get us to run after red herrings, always trying to get us distracted. Always trying to give, help, allow us to give up what's more valuable and to stop focusing on what's of greater value to go chase something that's of lesser value. And that's what's happening here in the Samson narrative. Now we all know from studying Samson the last couple of weeks in his life, Samson liked to have a good time. But guess what? He met his match. So does Delilah. She likes to play games. He likes to play games. And so here we go. Notice beginning in verse 6 that she starts a new game with Samson called the Philistines are here. Actually, Delilah was playing her own game. She just didn't tell Samson that. And Samson seemed to enjoy himself for a while. In chapter 16, verses 6 through 9, he was snapping fresh bowstrings. In verses 10 through 12, he was snapping new ropes. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, he was wrecking her loom. Because every time that Delilah would come to him and say, tell me the secret of your strength, he would always make up something. So for instance, in verse 7, he says, well, if you tie me up with fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become weak, just like any other man. So she calls the rulers over. That's what she does. But as soon as they're there, notice verse 9. He snaps the bowstrings as easily as a thread of yarn snapped with it when, it puts clo- when it's put close to the fire. And the secret of his strength was not delivered. She doesn't give up, though. Notice in verse 10. She goes back and she says, Look, you deceived me and told me lies. Now tell me how you can be subdued. So again, he says, Hey, if you tie me up tightly with brand new ropes, I'll become weak. She does that. And guess what? He tore the ropes from his arms as if they were a piece of bread. Verse 12. So then verse 13. Up to now you've deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you can be subdued. He says, well, if you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on the loom and secure it with the pin, I will become weak and be like the other man. She makes him go to sleep, weaves the seven brands of his hair into the fabric. Can I just say, I've never had hair, okay? But I have to stop here and go, I I can't understand that. How can somebody be braiding somebody's hair through and they don't even know it's happening? I mean, I I just, that's, I realize I'm speaking from ignorance here. So I, I don't know how that could happen. But anyway, she braids his hair into this loom, fastens it with the pin, says the Philistines are here once again playing the game. He wakes up, tears away the pin of the loom and the fabric. I'm sure she wasn't happy that she, he wrecked her loom. Well, Delilah began to tire the game. She says, I have a right to know the secret of your strength, and you're playing games with me. So cool and calculating, notice in verse 16, she pressed. My translation said she nagged. It's the same word, remember, that was used back in chapter 14, verse 17, when Samson's first wife drew the riddle out of him. We, we said back there how there was this pattern of weakness in Samson's character. And because she kept urging him over and over again, at last he cracked. 
One day it all came out. Samson said, Razor and Delilah saw silver. And so she calls the Philistines and says, I think I finally know what his secret is. Verse 18. She says, come up here again, for he has told me his secret. And there must have been something in what he said or the way he said it that she finally felt like he was telling her the truth. So the rulers of the Philistines went up to visit her, bringing the silver in their hands. She made him go to sleep on her lap, called a man in to shave off the seven braids of his hair. Again, I don't know how somebody can stay asleep when their hair's being shaved, but it must have happened. She made him vulnerable and his strength left him. Once again, she plays the game. The Philistines are here, Samson. And he woke up and thought. And here's the thud of the Samson story. Here's the the low point of the story of Samson. He woke up just like he always did, thinking, notice, I will do as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him. Here's the tragedy of the story of Samson. That here was a young man who had all this potential and all this power, but as we've said, as we've studied Samson, he had such great physical strength, but he had a lot of internal weakness. And here was a man who gave out his secret. And because he did that, he lost something very precious. He lost the power of God in his life. And he didn't even realize that he had lost it. It's like, I'm just going to go through the motions and just things are going to be just like they always are, right? And it wasn't there. It's like many times as Christians, we, we sort of play games with God and think that God is sort of like a light switch. I can just sort of turn him on and turn him off when I need to. It's like when we come to church on Sunday and gather as God's people. I always encourage Christians, live your whole week worshiping the Lord. And when you come to one of our five services on Sunday, it's just going to be an overflow of your whole life of worship. But if you come in those doors on Sunday and you pretty much ignored God all week and you think that you're going to just come into this auditorium and just sort of flip the switch on and think that somehow I'm just going to feel right there with God. No. Because God's and our relationship with Him and His power and presence and reality in our lives is not something that can just be switched on and switched off. It's something very precious that we need to hold on to. And Samson played games with his relationship and fellowship with God. Why tell Israel this story? Why did Israel need to hear this? Why did Israel need to remember both the entertainment of Samson and the tragedy of Samson? Because Samson was intended as a mirror for Israel. You see, in Samson, Israel was to see herself. Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One raised up out of nothing, richly gifted, who panders around with other loves and yet apparently always expects to have God in their pocket. So Israel has received grace on top of grace, yet persistently carries her affairs with Baal and idol worships and false gods, utterly ignorant of her true condition, assuming that all is well and that God is always at her disposal. 
Listen to the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. They say to a wooden idol, you are my father. They say to a stone image, you gave birth to me. Yet they have turned away from me instead of turning to me. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. And Samson's tragedy still speaks that you and I, even in the church today, need to watch out lest we leave our first love and forfeit the divine power and presence in our lives. And just expect that it's always going to be there. Not true. God's power is a precious gift. And it's not something to be trifled with or playing games with and sharing secrets. I want you to see quickly the vindication of God's honor in verses 22 through 31. Because Samson is not to remain a hairless trophy at the prison mill. You'll notice in verse 21, once the Philistines captured him, they gouged out his eyes, they brought him down to Gaza, bound him in bronze chains, and he became a grinder in the prison. But the rest of the story details the vindication of God's honor. You see, first the Philistines were as blind as Samson in supposing that blindness alone would render Samson harmless and in failing to notice seemingly that his hair had begun to grow again. Verse 22. Now, there wasn't any magic in Samson's hair. I'm glad to hear that. If it was about having hair to work to serve God, I'd be done. (laughs) But his strength came only from God. However, his hair was the sign of that strength. And we must not sever the sign from the reality which it signifies. A second aspect of Philistine presumption may be intended in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 16. Where the faithful rise and give thanks to Dagon, a non-god. As the sequel shows, who cannot prevent the sight of his celebration from becoming a massive cemetery populated by his devotees. Thirdly. They summoned Samson into their very midst to provide entertainment, verses 25 and 26. Never dreaming that they are simply furnishing him the props for his next act. And finally, the shrine was packed with participants, including all the Philistine bureaucrats, verse 27. Don't miss the fact that the Philistines are going to lose their entire national leadership in just a moment. One grunt from the entertainer of the day is going to bury the whole witnessing crowd under one heap of holy rubble. They're treating Samson as some kind of sideshow, circus act. Now we know that it was the absence of God, not the power of Dagon, that accounts for Samson's humiliation and shame. But Samson's shame has become God's shame. For praise that belongs to God alone is now being heaped at this lifeless idol called Dagon. And because God's servant has been humiliated, God suffers humiliation. Therefore, the heart of the last section of Samson's story is to show that Dagon, the God of the Philistines, is really no God at all. I want you to see now the nearness of God's help. Before leaving verses 22 through 31, I want to discuss briefly Samson's prayer. For Samson's calling to God in verse 28 is no minor element of the narrative. 
In fact, it underscores the nearness of God's help. God is the God who hears the cry of His servant in desperate circumstances. And don't miss that God's answer comes not only in the midst of desperate need, but in the wake of miserable failure. Notice what Samson prays in verse 28. After all that had happened to Samson, after his humiliation, after his binding, after his blinding, after his grinding, he becomes this circus act of the Philistines, a laughingstock amongst thousands of people. And Samson, verse 28, calls to the Lord, O Master Lord, remember me, strengthen me just one more time, O God, so I can get swift revenge against the the Philistines for my two eyes. Now notice, this is the Samson who would rather play around with Delilah than protect God's gift. This is the Samson who faithlessly bartered away God's strength in order to court a treacherous lover. It is this Samson, the faithless, foolish, fallen Samson, whom God hears. Don't miss that. Don't miss the nearness of God's help in times of desperate need, even to those who've done very foolish things. The reason why this is at my heart tonight is because I've talked to even several people just since Sunday who are at a place in their life and walk with God where they feel like they have fallen too far away from God, been away from God too long, done too much bad that God could never want to help them or want to deliver them or want to make anything great out of their life. Can I tell you, please, I beg you, I plead with you, look at the story of Samson. If anyone in the Bible had just totally blown it to the point where when he finally cried out to God, God said, eh, sorry, not doing it. It would have been Samson. And yet when Samson cried out to God, God answered. Folks, help for you and I tonight is only one prayer away. Don't sit there and believe the lies of others and the lies of the devil that you've went too far, you've done too much, you've you've been gone too long, you've... That that God can never help you or never want to help you become all that He created you to be. That God doesn't have a wonderful future and plan and purpose for your life. Those are the lies of the enemy himself. God wants to answer your prayers. He wants to deliver you. He wants to give you a bright future and a hope. And it can start tonight. It's only one prayer away, folks. Pray and ask God to help you tonight. You see, earlier in our study, I suggested that Samson was sort of Israel in concentrated form. That Israel was meant to recognize in Samson the pattern of her own faithlessness. If that is so, how is Israel to hear this latter part of the Samson story? Were they not meant to hear it in hope? 
Were they not to understand that though God's hand may justly cast down his unfaithful servants, his ears are nevertheless open to their cries and his arm still ready to act on their behalf? Should Israel not see that even in her sinfulness, God was still encouraging her to call upon him in the day of trouble? Should not all of us find hope in seeing that being cast down does not mean being cast off? There's hope. Let God put his hope in you. He is the God of all hope. And it is is his hope in us that can change how we see ourselves. It can change what we value in life. It can affect what we do with our lives, with our time, talent, and treasure. It gives us joy and peace. It gives us strength and courage. It gives us endurance, comfort, and confidence. Let God put his hope in you. There's always hope, folks, with God. It's only one prayer away. And notice this prayer too. When Samson calls on God here, it's a full-out commitment at this point in his life. He, he is done at this point in his life with half-hearted commitment. Have you ever heard of a half-committed kamikaze pilot? When you're a kamikaze pilot, there's no such thing as half-commitment. You are all in or you're not in at all. So that's why Samson, when he finally gets to this point in his life, he realizes, I'm all in, God. Just as I pull these pillars down and begin to deliver your people from the oppression of the Philistines once and for all, I'm going with them. I'm all in, God. No more half commitment. Many Christians, when they study the book of Judges and especially the life of Samson, as we've said before, Look at the strangeness of God's choice. Why would God choose a character like Samson as his servant? Here's a fellow who shatters all of our molds, conventions, and expectations about what a servant of God is to be. Worse yet, Samson is not only unconventional, he's also unfaithful. He seems to think his God-given strength was a plaything. He didn't seem to realize that our gifts are not given so that we can toy with them as we please, but to serve and care for the good of God's people. But here is this Samson, entertaining yet unpredictable, so promising and so tragic. Why choose him, God? Well, remember a couple weeks ago I said when God chose him, let's remember something. God wasn't choosing Samson at this time in Israel's history, to be a pastor, to be a missionary, to to have some kind of spiritual leadership in the church, we obviously know Samson would not have been there. The reason why God chose Samson was because he was willing to fight. Remember? That's all. He was willing to fight. Remember, the Philistines had a grip on the people of God. And the only one, it seemed, in Israel that was willing to say, This is not the way God intended for it to be. God doesn't want anyone or anything to have a grip on our lives but Him. And we've got to realize that we've got to come to the point, as I said last week, where if God's got a grip on us, we can let go of everything else. The problem was God didn't have a grip of His people. They were allowing the Philistines to have a grip on them. And Samson was the only one that was willing to stand up and begin to fight to loosen that grip that the Philistines had. That's why God chose him. Reminds me of a story, and you all know I love history, and especially the Civil War. During the Civil War, the story spread that General Grant was drunk during the Battle of Shiloh. 
And after the battle, President Lincoln was very much pressured by members of Congress and his own advisors to let General Grant go and to ask for his resignation. They spent hours upon hours, and President Lincoln, it is said, just sat there in silence, listening to the pressure of all these men telling him, you've got to ask for Grant's resignation. Finally, as they all ended, there was stone silence in the White House for quite a while. And finally, President Lincoln responded, I can't spare this man. He fights. That's why God chose Samson. Because he was willing to fight. Reminds me of the verse in 1 Timothy where Paul tells Timothy, I put this charge before you, Timothy. Fight the good fight. And as I said back to last week, some of you need to let God put that fight back in to your life. You've gotten to a point in your life where you're ready to quit the fight. You're not willing to keep fighting and keep pressing forward and keep striving and keep struggling. You're about ready to give up and, and, and get out of whatever you're fighting for. And I'm just here to tell you tonight, don't quit fighting. Don't quit struggling. Let God put the fight back into you. God can strengthen you and give you strength and give you hope and keep fighting, folks. It's worth fighting for. We are fighting for eternity. We are fighting for souls. We are fighting for our own spiritual well-being. We are fighting for the sake of our community here. And yes, we are in a battle, but God can keep us strong and keep us in the fight. Keep fighting, folks. Don't give up. One of the easiest temptations to which people succumb is self-sufficiency. We take on tasks in our own strength with our own abilities and ingenuity. The more we are self-sufficient, however, the less we are God-dependent. Samson demonstrated this. His strength was from God, but after a while he forgot that. Then came the day when the Lord left him, but he did not know that. When Delilah called Samson, the Philistines are upon you, he thought nothing had changed, yet everything had changed. Whatever physical ability Samson had was insufficient. His resourcefulness could not undo the cords that bound him. The Philistines were able to overcome him and after blinding Samson, humiliated him. His final act against the Philistines came when he prayed, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. Samson was no longer self-sufficient, but was once again God-dependent. Someone has said the Holy Spirit could be removed from the world and most Christians would not even notice. The point is that we tend to live, work, and even serve God in self-sufficiency. Are you and I dependent on God or independent of Him? To me, this is the main teaching of the life of Samson. And the easiest test to measure this are your prayers and your thoughts. Do you and I pray for God's help regularly? Or only when we're up against a wall like Samson was? Do we think about needing and receiving God's help? Or do we just get things done in our own strength? Let's not be foolish. Why be self-sufficient when you can be God-dependent? Think about what you will be doing today or tomorrow. And then ask God to help you with those tasks. Do this every day and experience not only God's help, but learn to remember that you need His help. 
In closing tonight, I want to share this thought, these thoughts with you. They were written down in the back of a Bible of a Civil War soldier in 1864. The soldier wrote in his Bible, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked God for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Can I say to you folks tonight that I just consider myself most richly blessed that I get to stand and teach the Bible to you folks every Tuesday evening. As far as I'm concerned, I am most richly blessed. I want to thank you for being here tonight.